This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of H.G. Lewis, Ted B. Michaels. Rest in peace. This is Morris here speaking. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to See Here, podcast episode 34. And as usual, I'm joined by my two esteemed and knowledgeable compadres. See, you're both that way. So no jealousy, Tim. Uh, first of all, on one side of my Skype screen from Bath is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good morning to you, Bernard. Uh, yeah, good morning. On the right-hand side of my screen is Mr. Tim Merrill. Good evening to you, Tim. You always like Tim better. <laughs> no, no. Feed me, Tim. Feed me. Yeah. Now, this month, it's your choice, Tim. We're going to be discussing right. the 1986 film. I think this is probably the first horror film, is it? Is this? Oh, no, no. We did Phantom of the Paradise. So oh. there you go. And no. we did we did Rock and Roll Nightmare. No, 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 no Black, we, we did, no, Black, Black Roses. Roses. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, All right. Yeah. It was Black go. Roses that we did. Yeah. Oh, oh well, there you go. I, I screwed that up. We probably should have done them every October or something like that. But uh, mm-hmm. might, we might see if we can make this a tradition. Anyway, we're going to be talking about the 1986 film uh, directed by... By my hero, Mr. Frank Oz, Little Shop of Horrors. What we'll do is we'll go to a, a quick trailer break and then we'll come back and discuss the film in detail. You're listening to See Here. Now, the most menacing musical comedy ever to paint the silver screen, Dream, Little Shop of Horrors. Where did you get such a weird plan? You get thrilled to the romance. Will you marry me? Sure. Witness the drama. You'll be a You have a talent I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. Feed me, Crawford! Feed me now! Savor the spectacle of the first plant in motion picture history ever to sing for its supper. Starring Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Vincent Gardenia, with a special appearance by Steve Martin. James Belushi, John Candy, and Bill Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. From break. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to See Here Podcast, episode 34. And as you could hear there, the film under discussion for tonight is the 1986, I don't know, is it a remake, a reimagining, a Reese Witherspoon, as Terry Frost would have it, a Little Shop of Horrors, directed by one Mr. Frank Oz, a.k.a. Miss Piggy, a.k.a. Fozzie Bear, a.k.a. Bert. And this film starred Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, the appropriately named Vincent Gardenia, and the voice of one Mr. Levi Stubbs, with some amazing cameos that we'll mention along the way. We'll make do without the pricey from IMDb, because there's probably nothing up there worth reading, and hopefully most of you out there have seen this film, and you'll get the gist from our description and our discussion of the film. Tim, you picked this. What's your history with the film? Had you previously seen the Roger Corman film? So where did you start with the Frank Oz version? Well, actually... I- I'd seen like the Corman version. I mean, every Saturday afternoon we had our creature features, and during the week, you know, there was uh, Buffalo 
I think it was Channel 2, guy Barry Lillis used to do the uh, after-school movie or the movie for a Sunday afternoon or whatever, and they'd run Corman's version of it. And then I remember when this came out, actually, I was dating a girl. Imagine that. She wanted to go and check this out. And I thought, oh, it's, it's a musical, you know, and I, it was not my forte, as the, as the kids uh, say. In the 80s, there was, you know, what was it, uh, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and then there was that film that Stallone did with Dolly Parton, Rhinestone. Oh, yeah. Num- yeah, and there was a number of musical movies that came out in the 80s. I mean, it just seemed uh, Annie. But anyway, no, we went and saw this and in the theater, and I, at the time, you know, initially I didn't think much of it, but then as I started to sit down and watch this film, I, I'm rooting for the plant. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she she's really getting perturbed that I'm rooting for the plant. You know, it ends the way it ends, but little did we know at that time, because there was none of this, you know, alternate cut type of stuff aside from, you know, bootleg videotapes or anything like that, that there was an actual whole different take on the ending of this film. Yeah, we'll get into it, but this is a different, completely different spin on Corman's original film. What What's really interesting with this to me is that there has been a number of, uh, you know, it being the month of October, you know, we go for a horror-based music film. There's been a number of horror-based musicals, right. and some of them have, have, have come off really well, and some of them really haven't. The Evil Dead, they've done that, that it's been amazing. Like, you know, that really took off. And then there was Rocky Horror Picture Show, of course, legendary. Mm-hmm. There was some that they tried. To, it was just, you know, like, there was actual Carrie musical. Oh, but there was and a Carrie musical. Yeah. yeah, and I think it only lasted about a week or something, right? Like, yeah, that was... <laughs> but, I mean, but they've done stuff like Sweeney Todd on Broadway that has been great. And, and, and initially, I, you know, I think that Little Shop of Horrors, you know, what Frank Oz has done here, he's really brought a more of a shine, you know, it, it, you know, I think this film is its own beast and really can't be compared to the Corman version, uh, only aside from, you know, the initial premise, right? Because obviously this film is kind of based on the musical, which was based on the Corman version. So I, I wonder, I'm never having actually seen the musical adaption, like the stage play. I wonder how close this is to the actual musical adaption or whether uh, Frank Oz did sort of change a few things around. I mean, obviously the ending, which we'll get to, but um, I wonder, because I, I did actually watch the original again yesterday, and there are some fairly significant differences in sort of character and events, aren't there? So, um, hmm. I'm curious how much this is a remake of the original film or whether it's a a sort of faithful adaption of the musical, you know? I did see a stage production of it many, many years ago. I mean, mean, there was actually a professional production of it that was staged in Australia maybe about three, four months ago. I unfortunately didn't get a chance to see it. Yeah. But it, it, the last few years, I've been noticing that it seems to be the school production musical of choice. <laughs> you know, it used to be whatever, you know, My Fair Lady or Les Miserables, but they're sort of kicking off their heels a bit and having some fun doing Little Shop of Horrors. And I guess as well as... That's great, you know, though, isn't it? That's oh, really absolutely good. Absolutely fantastic. Because yeah. as, as well as giving, you know, the acting and singing kids a chance to shine on stage and do their stuff, it also gives the kids who are more technically inclined a chance to go and design sets and design Audrey too and get Audrey to moving to some extent i mean obviously it's not going to be what was done in the film there was so much more that they could do with the film but to even get to some extent them to get this gigantic man-eating plant doing something on stage for kids it'd be a real challenge and uh I'm, I'm you know, really impressed that that's the, the musical of choice. And just on a personal basis, you know, Max auditioned for a school production about two, three years ago. He's going to hate me saying this, but, you know, what the hell? Uh, he, he auditioned for a school production maybe about three years ago for the uh, Orange Scrivello to Steve Martin part. And <laughs> I think he would have Man, knocked it out I, of the park, but the bastards didn't give it to him. Relax. You want some nitrous oxide? That's what you sell. I can see him killing that. I can see him with the quiff and the uh, the motorcycle jacket. That'd be amazing. Oh, he was going around with a leather jacket for weeks. 
Max, if you're listening to this, don't hate me, but, you know, just father's pride and all that sort of thing. So, Bernie, was this the first time that you watched uh, this version of the film? And when I say this version, I'm not talking about, you know, director's cut versus theatrical cut. Sure, yeah, yeah. But the the Frank Um, Oz version. I saw it back in the VHS days, I guess, probably because, let me think, 86 it came out, didn't it? So I didn't see it at the theatre, but I would have seen it on VHS probably within, you know, a year or so of it coming out, I guess. And strangely, it's, I didn't have much of a memory of it. It didn't make a huge impression on me at the time. So it was interesting to uh, revisit it now. And like, you know, as, as I mentioned, I watched the original film again yesterday and it's, it's strange how much they kind of got muddled up in my head. So it was definitely interesting to revisit the musical again. Interestingly, though, this is why I think it works as a musical. Tim was mentioning various horror films which haven't done so well, but I think this one works because of the quality of the songs. Mm. Because a lot of the songs, as soon as they started singing them, it was like, oh shit, yeah, I know this song. And I was singing along with it. The two songwriters on this absolutely knocked it out of the park there. I think maybe one or two weaker songs, but for the most part, they're all completely memorable. And unlike a lot of other musicals where the songs maybe stop the action, I think the songs in this film, they either really establish the character or they actually do push the story along. So well written in their own right. So yeah, absolutely, it completely works. It's almost something like when you watch something like Grease, you know, it's just got, to me, it's just got that, like you say, Bernie, the catchy songs and, you know, and it just yeah. seems like, you know, everybody's so just dancing along and it's just each song kind of personifies a certain person. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, I saw the film on its original cinema run here in Melbourne. I think it might have been February or March in 1987. So just a fraction after it had been released in the States. And I came out ecstatic. I went with Joe. We went to this cinema, which had only just opened up about three, four months beforehand and uh, is sadly no longer with us. Uh, the uh, village cinema center in Burke Street here in Melbourne. And I just remember coming out really thinking that, you know, it was all at once. It was funny, you know, not like serious horror film scary, but it certainly was suspenseful. Uh, we've already gone and established it had you know, memorable songs and it was possibly for me one of the last great musicals before what became this glutton of jukebox musicals that were predominant in the 90s there was a, a, a musical which I don't think it ever came here on a professional basis it might have been done by some amateur theatre groups but, and Bernie you'd probably know this because I know that it was showing in London called I think Return to the Forbidden Planet and okay yeah, yeah a, I know. Bunch of, a whole bunch of old rock and roll songs and, yes. and basically turning Forbidden Planet into a rock and roll musical and yeah, yeah. as you mentioned earlier on you know we've already gone and discussed phantom of the paradise and black roses and you know there's you know rocky horror show and it seems like they revel in something of the old time musical these songs they understand their pastiche well it's musical theater type of songs but with people who understand the genres of of music that they're making yeah. use of very very well right. so when levi Stubbs sings you could sort of imagine those songs sort of working as soul songs in their own right Song, you know, where uh, Seymour's, uh, you know, originally telling how he discovers uh, Audrey too in the market. And it's, yes, there, yeah, yeah. There's, there are the traditional oh. uh, musical theatre type songs, but they, they still work. But where they're sort of branching yeah. out into the rock and soul territories, it's a musical theatre adaptation, but they get it right. They really do get it right. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, I, I think what it is, there's a level of self awareness in what they're doing, mm. um, which it, it doesn't go too far either way. So they know exactly as you say what they're kind of pastiching or what they're reaching for but they don't overdo it or underplay it because of that I think it works very well mm. one thing I was going to say like when you're talking about when Seymour's singing about how he found Audrey too I was walking in the wholesale flower district that day and I passed by this place where this old Chinese man he sometimes sells me weird and exotic cuttings cause he knows you see that my strange plants are my hobby. He didn't have 
anything unusual there that day. So I was just about to, you know, walk on by. When suddenly, and without... One thing I noticed today that was kind of odd was that he talks about how he goes down to Chinatown and meets a little Asian man, and the little Asian man usually has these strange things that he wants to sell him, right? Mm, that's right. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Yes, maybe two years Gremlins. before that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow, 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 yes, yes. Yeah. And actually, I was going to mention that one of the times I'd seen Little Shop of Horrors on the cinema screen was as a double feature with Gremlins. Oh, right. Had, but it's I, the had same. Not made that, uh, I hadn't made that connection. Kind of a weird early 80s trope, isn't it? Of, uh, yeah. It strange kind of curiosity bizarre, shops. With, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely an addition to the musical because, again, in the original film... Seymour is basically just crossbred a Venus flytrap with some other plants. Right, right. There's, there's no kind of intimation that it comes from somewhere weird or almost outer spaces that, that's kind of implied in this. What it is, you right. know. So yeah, that was an interest. Again, I guess it was that kind of 80s fascination with sort of strange, mysterious, cosmic entities and so right. on. So mm. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> I've written a few notes here because I'd watched a um, what was I think basically an electronic press kit which is on the Blu-ray of the film and you know sort of reading a couple of historical things about the film and I think it's probably worth putting these things into context so sort of talks a little bit about the original ending versus the theatrical ending and how the uh, film came into being in the first place so I think it was David Geffen he produced the play and he came up with the idea said look I'd like to turn this into a film and did you guys know that his original choice for film director was going to be Martin Scorsese I did here's something about that yeah yeah i saw that somewhere yeah and and (laughs) that's insane isn't it (laughs) i think scorsese knocked it back because he said he wanted to make it into a 3d film and for whatever budget reasons or some other reasons they decided no we don't want to do it like that so he turned it away and personally i think with frank oz's history as a puppeteer or a muppeteer that's really part of this film's strength oh yeah is just how great audrey too look ah I could just imagine it too if Scorsese had done it, right? You know, like Audrey too would have said, feed me. And then, you know, Seymour would have said, are you talking talking to me? me? You talking to me? <laughs> Are you talking to me? Yeah. You must be talking to me. There's nobody else here. <laughs> well, so initially, Frank Oz apparently had turned down the film because he just wasn't sure how he was going to take it out of the confines of it being a stage piece. He said, look, I think the way I have this going, the play, everything takes place just about on the one set in the shop. Right. And he said, I want to take it out of that realm. I want it to look a little bit more, not necessarily realistic, because they built a big set rather than taking it out to the streets or to a real shop. You know, then he struck upon the idea of using the Greek chorus, the the three soul yeah, singers, yeah. and you know, Renette, Chiffon, and Crystal. I think that's so brilliant how they named that in homage. Just taking it a, a little bit aside for a second, during the week I watched Night of the Creeps for the first time. Oh yeah, and, oh yeah. And you got the characters in there. They make their dip of the lid to the great horror directors. So there's characters named right. Landis Carp- and Raimi Carpenter and Cronenberg. Yeah. And yeah. rather than sort of, you know, dipping the lid to calling a character Corman, they say, well, no, they're a great classic era soul girl group. No loitering! Man, I wasn't loitering, were you, Crystal? Not me, Ronette, were you, Shafar? We're going to name them after three Phil Spector girl groups. And I, I just thought that was an absolutely fantastic homage, you know, dipping of the, yeah. dipping of the lid to, to that. Work really well as well, don't they? The, uh, the chorus sort of uh, narrating it almost throughout. I think they're perfect. Absolutely. They blend in, like, so like where, where they come in, in the, uh, uh, during the dentist song. Here he is, folks, the leader of the flat. Watch him suck up that gas. Oh my God. He's a dentist that he'll never ever be any good. Who wants that teeth done by the Marquis de Sade? That fantastic shot of, of Steve Martin drawing the hole into that guy's teeth and you, you get to see from the inside of his mouth and they're, they're on either side of him and, and singing along with him like the Greek chorus. It's absolutely fantastic. They get the costume changes, they do the narration, they blend in with the action. It's absolute genius. Really, really fantastic. The other thing that I found really interesting was by the time they got to Audrey 2 at its maximum size and there were apparently five or six different iterations of Audrey 2 in the film so you know the the smallest one 
that, that Seymour originally introduces, by the time it's at its final size towards the end of the film, there's something like 50 or 60 people operating it. And I know that this is the wow. sort of thing that you've brought up on the show uh, a number of times, Tim, but it's really majorly impressive that this is all practical effects. There was right. next, next to no green screen usage for, uh, right. for this film, and this is well before the days of CGI, all practical well, effects. Well, I was going to say, and I don't mean to be that old man on the porch, you kids get off my own. <laughs> but if this was to be remade today, it would just flat out be shit, as far as I'm concerned, because there's something that Frank Oz brought to this film with his expertise in puppetry and just the whole practical magic of all of it. It would just suck the soul out of it if it was if any all of that was to be done with CG. It just wouldn't be the same. And you know, not to go too far ahead, but I mean with the alternate ending, you know, that that's just like overdrive with all the practical effects in that. There's so much warmth and there's so much, you know, personal touch that goes into all of this that CG just couldn't even come close to meeting. Yeah, another, I totally agree. Another thing that I think really, really works about the film, and it was only like in the last couple of days that I actually articulated this, although I'd probably always sort of known it, is the pacing of the film. There's enough happens in its own time. It, it's not a slow film, but it's not in a hurry to get anywhere until it needs to be. You know, we don't see Audrey 2 as a character for, you know, the first 10, 12 minutes. We're establishing Skid Row and we already have like two songs before we even get to Audrey 2. And it's probably halfway through the film before Audrey 2 even speaks slash sings. Yeah. And we realize exactly yeah. what a threat right. the character is going to be. Right. And yet I never felt, and I've watched this film tons of times, I've never felt that, come on, get to the point already. I think, no, I'm, I'm right. being entertained. The story is you know, going along at its own pace. The Steve Martin character, the dentist, comes in and he gets his own song. When I was younger, just a pair My mama noticed funny things I did. Like shooting puppies with a BB gun. I'd poison guppies when I was done. I'd find a pussy cat bashed its head. That's when my mama said, What did she say? She said, My boy, I think so. That could easily, in lesser hands, have been a digression that wasn't really needed. By the time we get to see Steve Martin's fate, we know we needed to establish his character. Right. The only time I think it accelerates is that whenever Audrey 2 gets fed, it's almost like Jaws to me, where he's just like, feed me, 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 feed me. You know, and it's just like, yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> it's, it's just this acceleration whenever, you know, he's like, you know, come on, Seymour, come on, Seymour, come on, Seymour. Done. And then Seymour goes, oh, shit, what did I do? You just fed me, sucker. <laughs> you know, like, I love that. I love that. It's just, you can use, like, it's almost like that total junkie analogy, this film, where it seemed, you know, like, the plan is like the monkey on Seymour's back. You know? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And he's like, come on, come on, Seymour, you gotta give me some, man. It's like, no, no, I can't give you any more, you know, like, I don't have any more. Like, come on, Seymour, give me some, you know, like, and it's funny, Morris, too, because to make a comparison, have you ever seen the Frank Hannon-Water film Brain Damage? No, I don't think I have. Yeah, have you I seen have. it, Bernie? I, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I see where you're going with this. Hang, hang on, forgive yeah. me. You know exactly. Hang on, is, is that the guy who did Basket Case? Yes. Yes. Okay. And it's about it's about this kind of this parasite thing, and it looks like a looks like a turd, and it actually well, latches onto the Elmer, and it actually latches onto the back of your neck, and it injects this psychedelic fluid into your brain, so you're like tripping on this massive LSD trip. And, you know, and it's like the greatest high you've ever had. And then when you come down, you know, the things like, and it has the voice of Zachary, the old horror uh, host. So it's just like, come on, Brian, I'm hungry. You got to feed yeah. me, Brian. <laughs> and, it's, and it actually wants human brains. So he's got to go out on the street with this thing and go and feed it human brains, you know. And then the more he tries to basically deny it, he's getting the DTs and he's getting all the shakes. And it's like, feeling a little sick there, Brian? He's like, shut up. 
<laughs> come on, Brian, all you got to do is feed me, you know, like, and it's that whole junkie thing. And, and when you're watching this film, it, it's like, it kind of, it's there. Brain Damage came out in, what, 87, 88? So it's entirely plausible yeah. that uh, Hen and Lotta yeah. would have seen this and actually got an obviously would have known the original film. Yeah. Well, and again, it, it follows that, that kind of trope in that uh, Seymour eventually, you know, has to stand up. Gotta end this once and for all. Seymour. I'm gonna bust that pod wide open. Wait, I'm coming with you. No, it's me that got us into this. I'm the one to get us out. Wait for me, Audrey. This is between me and the vegetable. To the right. uh, the monkey on his back, yep. doesn't he? And um, sure, sure. That sort of pans out in two different ways depending on which ending you go with. So yeah, he's sort of that Woody Allen nebbish, but with a little bit more balls. There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, <clears throat> and one of them says, "Boy, the food at this place is really terrible." The other one says, "Yeah, I know, and such small portions." You know, that's how they kind of match up. Corman's original with this one is that the nebbish character of Seymour. But also Vincent Gardenia, you know, in the original, he's kind of like that that domineering uh, Jewish store owner guy. Oh. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I got to say, I was watching that in cringing. Ah, good morning, Mrs. Shiva. How's things today? Oh, the same as usual, Mr. Mushnik. My sister's nephew Stanley died in Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, what happened? He got blown up. Who knows how? That's nice. Well, you would like maybe, as usual, some flowers for the funeral. Oi, oi, oi. Seymour, when are you ever going to do anything with your life? You know, you just yeah, yeah. You don't do anything, Seymour. Like, uh, you know, it's that whole pecking at him the whole time, right? You know, like, that's pretty much matched up. Benny, you were the mo- one who most recently watched the 1960 original Roger Corman one. Uh, what did yeah. you think of that? It's you can see why whoever turned it into a stage musical thought that it would work because again it's it takes place on maybe like two sets most of it takes place in the shop some of it takes place in Seymour's mother's house and of course Seymour's mother doesn't show up in the the musical at all Mm. but it's yeah it's, it's very much of its time obviously 1960 it's interesting how similar Seymour is in both when some of the other characters aren't. Mm-hmm. Dick Miller shows up in the original and he likes to eat flowers, which right. is kind of strange. Uh, there's no sort of analogue for him in the remake. Yeah, it, it's kind of fun. It's it's like an hour and ten minutes, and I've got to be honest, it's, uh, it feels a little uh, too long even at that. <laughs> oh, really? I <laughs> yeah. love it. I, I... Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's early Corman, yeah. cheap fun you know but, uh, you know it was filmed in two days yeah it shows doesn't it <laughs> well well i mean but you know full cra- I, I still think it, it's a mighty good looking film for two days oh absolutely so, uh, yeah uh, yeah this, yeah he wrote the script like over a couple of weeks and then ran through it with the cast in three days filmed it in two days had a couple of callback sessions over the next couple of weekends and boom and then that was it apparently there was talk about it being done as just as a challenge to see whether he could do it but i heard a more interesting reasoning something about that i think to be, it was filmed like in december of 59 or something like that and yeah. there were going to be new i'm not sure it was new tax laws or something like that and it, it was just it, it was something something financial i believe and corman thought oh i better get this in so um, i was gonna say yeah knowing what we know about corman that one probably makes more sense <laughs> <laughs> Was it before uh, Bucket of Blood or after Bucket of Blood? It was Blood? after a, It was after Bucket of yeah. Blood. Apparently, he used the same sets from Bucket of Blood for a little yeah, couple. Right. Yeah, and of course, Dick Miller's in both of them as well, isn't he? Mm. So yeah, but and, it's, uh, and also the the humour is very dated. A lot of the jokes don't work. Some of them do still, but a lot of them are very. It's like reading Mad Magazine from 1960, you know. <laughs> but so. I, I still think that it's it's very black and very deliberately black. It, I mean, it, it's obviously it is yeah, cheap and it looks it, it looks cheap. Yeah. But I using the framing device, which they didn't sort of avail themselves too much of, but using the framing device of the police chief doing the narration. Yes, um, I was doing the make, uh, the dragnet. This, yeah, yeah. It reminded me so much of the, the H.G. Lewis film that I watched a few weeks ago. The two cops who come and talk. I got a case. No. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Come in. It's me, Joe. Come on in, Frank. How's the wife, Frank? Not bad, Joe. Glad to hear it. The kids? Lost one yesterday. Lost one, eh? How'd that happen? Playing with matches. Well, those are bricks. Yeah, I guess so. 
<laughs> yeah. And uh, I thought, this has got to be a piss take. It's, you know, it's not deliberate. So I, I took it in the spirit of it being a really, really good piss take and they were having a whole lot of fun. Yeah, no, I'm sure that was a, a pastiche of uh, that sort of Dragnet style of sort of cop kind of mm. thing, wasn't mm. it? But yeah, yeah, you're um, you're right. The original does have a fairly sort of mean streak to it. And, you know, it's quite dark and the ending is actually quite... It's they play it lighthearted, but it's actually quite horrible. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, look, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I want to eventually get to talking about the ending of the film, but you know, we should probably talk some more about the body of of uh, the film as it is. Yeah, interested to see what you guys think of the main actors, actors and actress, uh, and also the cameos throughout it, because there's a bunch of people that I completely forgotten were in this who show up and do great little turns and then vanish again. So. Mm. What did you guys think of uh, Rick Moranis and uh, Ellen Green? I think it's some kind of fly trap, but I haven't been able to identify it in any of my books. I gave it my own name, though. I call it an Audrey 2. After me? I hope you don't mind. I miss Rick Moranis, you know what I mean? To me, one of the, sure. the greatest tragedies is that he's actually just dropped out of the business. He's just basically, you know, he doesn't do anything anymore, really. And, it was interesting. Um, he was um, the the Ghostbusters remake. They offered that to all the original people. Right. Everyone shows up in it, apart from Rick Moranis, who apparently was like, yep. oh, "What the fuck? I want to do that. That's ridiculous." So yeah, <laughs> more power to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. He's great in this. To me, like it's so funny. Rick Moranis, to me, he can play like he can kind of turn on a dime. He can be the nebbish, but then he can kind of be the the smoothie, like the little like with uh, Ellen Ellen Green, you know, like he can be the smoothie, and then he he can kind of be like the aggressive little kind of like I'm not putting up with you. See, I mean uh, Audrey too, like you know, like I mean, like he, he he jumps. He has a lot of balls to juggle in this film. I mean, it's it's not just a simple um, role. Because, you know, it, it's like he's got to go from letting the genie out of the bottle to putting the genie back in the bottle to dealing with the remorse, you know, of what he's done. And then or, or yeah, and, and yeah. basking in, in love and, you know, and falling in love with Alan, Alan Green. Audrey. Yeah, you know, yeah. Audrey. Yeah, Audrey. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, like he's, he's, he's going through so many, a gamut of so many different things in this film. And I think he's great. And as far as Alan Green is concerned, I have to make a confession that, you know, even though I saw this film the first time in the theater and I was there with the date, I thought she was pretty hot at the time. <laughs> <laughs> she actually was doing the role off-Broadway. She'd done something like four years' worth of performances. And yeah. apparently film musicals don't have a history of offering the lead actor or actress from the, a Broadway production a role in the film. I think, you know, one of the, mo sure, one of the more yeah. infamous examples, I right. think, was uh, Julie Andrews not being offered the role of Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady. Right. But then again, she right. laughed all the way to the bank with the success the, of Mary Poppins. The only thing I didn't like about Ellen Green, her, her performance, it wasn't the performance, but the one thing I kind of didn't like in this that kind of put me off a little bit was um, playing this role that's almost like Edith Bunker. And you knew where you were You know what I mean? No. Like she's got... No, they like Bray. <laughs> we're not uh, American or Canadian, uh, Tim. We don't know no, who well, Edith Bunker is. Oh, I know who Edith well, Bunker the, is, but... I all of the family, Archie, Archie Bunker's wife, right? But she's got that kind of... Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, like, she's like a timid, like a very, you know, kind of flighty, like, she's sweet, she's so sweet, but she's kind of got that really New York-y, kind of like that, you know, that kind of neighborhood girl, kind of that simplicity, I don't know. But anyway, you know, she's, she's playing that role through the whole film, and she's singing really sweet and soft, but then there's that one point where they're singing Suddenly Seymour. Sweet 
yeah, yeah. And then she, and then she starts suddenly see more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and she's like Tina Turner, right? Like she's like Tina Turner all of a sudden. You, but uh, but I know like, what you mean. It, but uh, at that point, she's been empowered by sure. uh, you know realizing that sure. Seymour's the one for her, and also. Too- it's too full on. Like she just goes too. Yeah, I, mean, I can see that. Too, yeah. Tim, you know who was originally offered the role? No. Barbara Streisand. Who do you think they'll arrest? The girl in the tub or the guy with his pants down? No. Oh no. Really? Barbara, no. Barbara Streisand was originally no. offered the role. She wouldn't have done the timid thing. Let's face it. This film, if it's going to be a valid homage to films of that era, then really the, the timid side <laughs> is what's needed. But if the song is written up. Uh, to be sung like that. And really, I remember watching it in the cinema at the time and you know, listening to uh, Suddenly Seymour and thinking, holy fuck, where did that voice come from? Yeah, yeah. Right, there is, right. There's definitely, there's a moment where it suddenly just goes woof, isn't there? And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just, it's uh, like yeah. she just blasts and it's like, you know, and the next minute I'm just expecting her to start singing, rolling, rolling, rolling <laughs> on the river. You know, like, Do you think that you could read into her performance and you know how, how the the film is written that maybe she's taking advantage of Seymour a little bit because he is a way for her to get rid of her abusive dentist boyfriend because she doesn't seem particularly broken up about the facts he's the one that initially says well it wouldn't be such a bad thing if he was gone after all right and she's like well why would you bring why would you even say that well 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 you're right yeah but she, she comes around <laughs> awfully quickly doesn't she <laughs> she does absolutely. Yeah. She does. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Perhaps I'm just I'm just putting that out there. Maybe you could read that in. Maybe and not. I don't know. Even spoiler gets to a point where he tells her where Oren is and where yeah. uh, Mister uh, Mushnik is. Yeah, he tells yeah. him where they both are, and she's just like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> you know, like, she doesn't really seem to be like, "Oh my God!" Like, what did you do, man? Like, what yeah, the fuck yeah, is wrong yeah. with you? Like, she just, she just, oh, okay, mm. yeah. Like you were saying earlier, Morris, it's that suspension of disbelief, and it's making sense in the universe that it's created Absolutely. for itself. Right. You love him madly, don't you, schmuck? Mister Mushnik, you scared me. I, I, I scared him. After what I seen, I scared him. Oh. You think I didn't know, huh? Oh, I knew. I knew you lay down here on your pathetic little cot and dreamed about her. But I didn't know the lengths to which you'd go, the depths to which you'd sink. I want to sort of just quickly talk a little bit about the song that she sang before that didn't prepare us for Suddenly Seymour. And that's Somewhere That's Green. And it was actually Howard Ashman. I'd forgotten the name at the start of the show, but yeah, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, uh, who composed all these songs. And I think they really deliver the pathos in this song, but I, I like the clash between the sincerity that she's singing with and the pathos. And you sort of feel sorry for her. She wants to get out of Skid Row. But Frank Oz very cleverly has, you know, sort of done something visual. I mean, the character that she's singing, uh, she said, I, I really want to be with Seymour and I want this little house in the suburbs. And he's very deliberately gone and put up a very cardboard-looking house and a cardboard-looking set. And you get yes. the animated bird that sits on her finger. And that's, you know, I think, Frank Oz saying, well, you know, this American it's dream fantasy. is yeah, it's, yeah. it's really fantasy. It, right. It's not it's not reality. Yeah, you're, the colors of the film, you know, in, in Skid Row, they're all very brown, very gray, very dark. And we right. it's a super colorful thing. But, you know, Frank Oz is saying, you know, this is not Nirvana either. So I, I, yeah, I just yeah. love it. But the song itself, when you listen to it on the record or the CD or whatever your chosen form of listening to music is, as I said earlier, it's classic American musical theatre. But because he's taken the time to establish the character beforehand, you really do feel some level of sympathy for it. And even though you think, well, you know, yeah, it's a little bit dull what she wants. But you think, if that's what you want, I want you to get it. At least that's, you see that part of her fantasy she's with the the ladies of the tupperware party and it's right. like very valley of the dolls and uh yeah, yeah. and all out of home beautiful magazine you're thinking sometimes you'll watch something and you'll think i've heard this before where have i heard this and you're going, <laughs> I, oh I my know, god so. they you know what i'm talking about bernie i know yeah Family i was guy. just thinking the very same thing exactly yeah 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 um there's this it, character herbert the pervert this old the old pervert guy 
and he's he's dressed up in drag and he's singing that song somewhere there's green you know and he's all walking through the house and oh, he's like you know I wish I was Donna Reed you know like yeah yeah the songwriting team of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken went on to write songs for a bunch of Disney films after this The Little Mermaid and Aladdin right. and of course in a while like, in, in Aladdin, you know, they had the, I don't remember the name of the song, but there's this fantastic song that Robin Williams... A Whole New World? Is that the one? The Whole New World? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not the fantastic song. There's a fantastic song that Robin Williams sings as oh. you know, the genie of the lamp and I'm your... I'm just, so they could still kick out a funny song, but yeah, unfortunately they were responsible for a whole new world and somewhere that screen just stays on the right line of how maudlin a song like that is. There's another interesting thing that occurred to me watching this with with that song particularly Somewhere That's Green with the original ending she does wind up Somewhere That's Green but it's not (laughs) do you know what I mean? There's that kind of level of there's a bit of foreshadowing there almost she does wind up Be careful what you ask for (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that kind of struck me. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, before we talk endings again, let's just talk about you know, a couple of other songs there. Well, some of the cameos as well. I mean, obviously, right. we mentioned Steve Martin and his dentist song. He almost steals the film, that just punching out his nurse and drilling people's mouths and riding around on his motorbike. Punching out Miriam Margulies was his uh, idea. Yes, it was. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. He was I like how his motorcycle just falls out of the sky. How his bike just falls out of the sky. He, he just jumps off it and it just stops. And it's just stop right. You know, like that's just awesome. Yeah, no, he's great. Well, inspired. You... Sorry, not Jack Nicholson, but uh, yeah, go on. Uh, you say he steals the film, but uh, just when you think he's done it, Bill Murray comes along and says, Yes. No, no, my friend, I'm stealing this off you. Yep. Say ah. <laughs> And him as the uh, as the massacres and Bill Murray's dialogue in that scene was all impro. Apparently, every time they shot the take, he came up with completely it was different. Something different. He, he's better than Jack Nicholson in the original. Uh, Jack yes. Nicholson's pretty good, but yeah. You know, most people don't like to go to the dentist, but I rather enjoy it myself. Don't you? <laughs> I mean, there's such there's a real feeling of growth of of. <laughs> progress when that, that old drill goes in and how about um did you guys spot christopher guest in there right at the start oh, absolutely excuse me i couldn't help noticing that strange and interesting plant <laughs> yeah um who else john candy shows up briefly doesn't he right the, the radio the radio announcer wink wilkinson where did you get that weird plant <laughs> Okay, well, this is where we're going to have to start talking about the two different endings of the film. So, in the theatrical cut, it's James Belushi, who uh, has this great line, just yes. as they're about to start singing, he said, Come on, you two kids, before you start bursting out into song, that's getting very meta, I want to I want to see if I can buy the plant off you and then sell the cuttings and we'll ship them all around the world. And, of course, that's what sends Seymour over the edge, saying, Ah, oh, that was your plan all along to take over the world. But in the theatrical cut, it's using the great Paul Dooley doing the that's, same, yeah, doing yeah, the same yeah, part. Yeah. It was Paul Dooley, that's right. Uh, Mr. Kralborn, Patrick Martin, International Licensing and Marketing. I want to show you something. I'm not interested. Ah, but you will be. Look, look. I took the liberty of taking a cutting from that amazing plant of yours. And look what grew in just a couple of days. I'm trying to remember, Tim, do you remember if when Paul appeared on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast, do you remember if they asked him about that? I don't think so. Right. They asked him about Popeye, Popeye and other things, right. but I know, but, but I don't think they asked him about that. So he, he just, when they had to do the reshoot, he wasn't available, so they got James Belushi in, and probably this stage should just sort of say that the reason why they couldn't do the original ending was they did a test screening. I don't remember where the original one was, but they did two. The, the second one was in Los Angeles. They did the first where first one, I think, in some Midwest state in America. And according to Frank Oz, the audience was laughing and clapping and singing along to all the songs. And then it came to the last 20 minutes. And in his words, the cinema turned into an icicle box. They couldn't believe. And 
this is now where we have to go into spoiler territory, so turn off if you right. don't know what happens if you haven't seen it. Basically, Audrey 2 wins, Seymour and Audrey 1 die and get fed to the plant. And actually, I should say, because Bernie, you said you hadn't seen the play, but according to my recollection, the play ends with Seymour being eaten by the plant and that's where the lights go out. But of course, the film has an extra, okay. fif- yeah. an, an extra 15 minutes. And I want to do a round table here. I've got my thoughts, but I want to get your guys' opinions first. You, you both watched the, the two endings, I take it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, Bernie, what's your preference and why? I think I prefer the theatrical ending, which mm-hmm. is the shorter, happy ending. Yes. Um, I, can, I can see what Frank Oz was going for with the, uh, that original ending. But I think it is just too dark. You, you're kind of rooting for um, Seymour and uh, Audrey all the way through to get together and have some sort of happiness and overcome the obstacles in their way. And for that to just be so almost cruelly just kind of dashed and it feels a bit sort of cheap and unsatisfactory to me. Mm. That makes sense. I mean, I, I like the fact that he goes whole hog with that original ending. It's not just the plant wins, it's the plant and all the other plants take over the whole world and destroy humanity, which is if you're going to go to that extreme, then that's, you know, that's, you need to push it that way. But uh, for me personally, I, I know it's it's a little kind of trite and a little obvious and a little too easy. But I think in respect of the film and the tone of the film and your sympathies towards those two main characters, I prefer the theatrical ending. I don't know if that, that might not be a, a popular choice, but that's kind of how I felt. I have to agree with Bernie for number of reasons i mean for one audrey says that you know it's okay she wants to be put in the plant and then you know seymour goes along with it and feeds her to audrey too i mean you can't see him doing that no I just that still couldn't, doesn't work you, does it no you can't see him doing that just oh, we'll, we'll always be together and i'll be with the plant okay <laughs> he feeds yeah. into the plant i mean it's like no yeah. like and the other thing is, maybe it was a bit presumptuous on Frank Oz's part that he thought that there might be, you know, the uh, the opportunity for a sequel in this. Because at the very end, you know, when you see the Statue of Liberty and it says, the end? Question mark. Yeah, yeah, and then you see yeah. them all come out of it. That's almost like a Gremlins thing, too. You know, like, it, it just seems like, you know, the Gremlins are taking over. Like, I, I like the original ending. I mean, the uh, theatrical ending, because it's it's just like, it all gets tied up. You know, it's still ironic. It's still a little quirky in the end. And, you know, everything winds up as it should be. You know what I mean? You get that little wink at the camera that right at the end as well. Don't right. You know, things right. That's what I'm saying. You still, perfect. you still get yeah, it. Yeah. You still get it. But uh, have you guys ever seen uh, Burton's Mars Attacks? No, List of Shamer for me. Uh, okay. Not for a while. I have seen it, but years okay. ago. The ending of the original ending, you know, with the army there. And you see that giant, giant Audrey show up, you know, and comes up out of the water. I mean, to me, that was totally like Mars Attacks or something like that, right? You know, and it totally, it took the movie too far. You know, the very ending. I mean, the movie's supposed to be like, okay, you know what, you know, Audrey 2's got that plan for world domination and her little spores and all that stuff. And it, it just took it too far. If you, if you could think of the potential, that would have been enough. But to actually see him, you know, people laying in bed and the, the tendrils going through the walls and pulling the people out of the beds and like, yeah, you don't, you don't need that. It's such a uh, a small scale film set in a you know in a, a right. couple of locations in a small area for it to suddenly right. expand and then you know become like this huge global thing right at the end. You've, it's, you've, it's too much, isn't it? You've beaten me to the punch. Although I, I confess that I actually sort of thought that the two of you were going to go. No, I like the darker ending, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be the only <laughs> idiot here left with the uh, the happy ending thing. But yeah, look, you've both gone and said exactly what I thought, which was the film up until the last. 20 minutes they've spent all this time saying we want you to like Audrey we want you to like Seymour we want you to barrack for them and then to have the rug pulled out from under your feet it's not like Obviously, it's not like there'd never been a film made before which didn't have a dark ending, but this film had comedy, it had great happy songs, even when Audrey 2 was singing his songs, and it it was all done in a joyful way, even while he was was sort of like the the evil guy with the long moustache tying the girl down to the railroad track. It was still all done with some sense of fun for us in the audience. And I always sort of thought, yeah, well, of course, you know, they, they're going to win. And right. seeing the theatrical cut, that's what happened. But yeah, also the point that you just made, Bernie, I was thinking that exact same thing. It's a, it's a small 
world film. You know, the you know, yeah. flower shop, the dentist, uh, right. Skid Row in general. And just the fact that he takes it out into the wider world, it almost seems a little bit tacked on. And I do get it that you think, well, we've gone and paid homage to a certain type of horror film of the 50s. But we also, oh, hey, wouldn't it be great if we paid homage to Godzilla as well? And right. the right. whole tragedy of that. Um, ending was that it cost something like 20 to 30 percent of the film's overall budget to make and six Holy to eight shit. months six to eight months worth of filming i've forgotten the name of the guy who really? was the, no, it was all done tabletop apparently the, the guy wow. who did the design work he, he had been hired by frank Oz to do the design work that was all his work was that last 20 minutes of the film and he was heartbroken there's an interview on the blu-ray go back and watch it if you can this whole thing he was heartbroken he said right well you know having to be told by frank sorry we have to lose all your work. I mean, of course, Frank went and said that, you know, I think back in 2010 or 2011, they restored the film because that film footage had been lost for years apart from maybe a, a black and white work print, but they found, sure, apparently, yeah. they found some videotapes right. of the colour, restored it and I'm I'm really, really happy to have seen it on the Blu-ray and I'm glad that it got a theatrical screening at some New York City film festival and it's just good to know that, okay, it was filmed, it was there, I'm glad to have seen the contrast but I'm really far happier knowing that the version that most people know and love is the happily ever after ending. It, the, these characters, they deserve it. The tone of the film deserves it. Right. Yeah. I know Frank Oz didn't feel that way, but I'm really glad that, you know, he was a, he was a practical working director. He, they had the two screenings where the public said, we hate this. You can't do, you can't make us love these characters and kill them off. And he basically said, well, I either play prima donna and say, well, no, we're going to leave it like that and it's Warner Brothers are never going to release it or we film an alternative ending which I didn't really want to do uh, and then lots of people get to see the film and I'm yeah. right. really glad that he was very practical about that. It's oh, interesting yeah. as well that the kind of theatrical ending feels a lot more organic yes. than the um, his original ending. In fact, his original ending feels almost like it was by committee. Like a bunch of producers were kind of like, "No, we need to, uh, you know, up the ante and make uh, some sort of changes and give it some more action or threat or what have you." Right. And it, like you say, tonally, it feels just completely wrong. Mm. But it's interesting that that was. As far as Frank was concerned, that was the organic ending, but uh, interesting. But yeah, I'm, I'm totally glad they went the other way with it. So. Mm. That is incredible. The only other point I wanted to make, apart from sort of like asking you guys favorite song or favorite moment in the film, is what did you think about the, the balance between, I won't call it horror, but sort of suspense and comedy because, you know, the 80s was big with you know, films like Return of the Living Dead, which is a full-on sort of comedy horror film, and given that they were probably sort of going for a more family-friendly type of film here. Do you think that they got enough suspense in, or, or did you just sort of think, oh, yeah, it's more homage to suspense than actually suspenseful? But do you think they got the balance right? I think they did. One thing I think, you know, and I'm not trying to be a prude or nothing, but I noticed that if you say for a family-friendly film – there's a fair amount of cussing in this film, you know? Yeah. Definitely. Like, I mean, you know, and, and it's like when the dentist, like, what, what are you doing? A goddamn thing. Goddamn, you know, and they, or, you know, or, or my favorite line in the whole film is when, you know, when Seymour says Dodge 2, you know, this was your plan all along. No shit, Sherlock. You know, like, <laughs> like, I love that, you know? But no, I think there's a, there's a menace to this film. And I mean, for younger kids that are getting into horror, you know, you don't want to bring him in like I was brought in with Texas Chainsaw right off the hop. You know, like it's just like you, you want to ease them in, and you want you you know, as parents, you know, you want the those films you can sit down and watch with your kids. You know, and I think this film you know has a lot of balance between you know the the uh, enjoyable music, you know, sometimes that are things that are suspenseful. I, I confess, I'm a bad father that I am. I took Max to see this as an eight year old or a nine year old, and I had absolutely absolutely no reservations about it about the language. yeah well that, that, that's what it was designed for isn't it it's more about the musical aspects and uh the kind of humor and the uh, i guess the the sort of thrills as it is more so you know and any sort of unease or horror kind of aspects right. to it right it's there and there's I'll... enough of there but that's not what it's about so i, I think right. they get the balance just right to be honest seymour is supposed to play the aggressive guy but you can't have him be too aggressive like when he, he shows up at the dentist's office with the gun 
and you're thinking, oh shit, man, he's he's gonna shoot him. But then all of a sudden, it's just like he's asphyxiating on the novocaine or whatever. He's you know taking, <laughs> and so he doesn't he doesn't have to shoot him. It's like that's brilliant, you know, because I mean, if 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 he was gonna shoot him or at least lead him by gunpoint to Audrey too, you would say, oh, you know, like Seymour's too much of a shit, you know. But he's not. All right. So favorite songs from the movie? I would say Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. song which keeps going through my head and I've been singing to myself for the last couple of days is uh, when you're a dentist you'll be a dentist you have a talent for causing pain hey some be a dentist people will pay you to be inhumane your temperament's wrong for the priesthood and keep cheap would suit you still less some be a dentist you'll be a success so it's got to be that one. Yeah, look, I, I, yeah. I think it probably. Oh, I really can't choose between those two. They are my two favorites. Although, uh, probably from a musical theatre perspective, you know, taking the the comedy and the stylistic obvious choices of those two aside, I really do like the the second song in the film, Skid Row. establishing the characters and I think I gotta say we haven't sort of spoken enough about how Frank Oz used his his cast of uh, extras and the like but I think it's beautifully shot beautifully filmed where you know Seymour sings his bit Audrey sings her bit we see the people who are living in this poor area of Skid Row almost looks like something out of a zombie film it's bringing up the fear you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Frank Oz had been a fan of Romero because you know that bit where uh, Seymour is you know backing away from the cyclone fences the, uh, the, right. the people in Skid Row are climbing it and they're, they're the look, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It. It's it's very uh, Dawn of the Dead to me in, in right. that regard. But that that song has enough drama in it. it. It establishes sympathy for the characters. It establishes where they are. It's it's a musically. It's just a fantastic musical theater type of song. It's different to a lot of what else comes into the film with you know sort of right. rock and roll or soul pastiche. This is straight musical theater, but it is a great and very very memorable song. So just to be different to you guys, as much as I love those other two songs, I'll, I'll quote Skid Row. I think is my favorite. It, it seems like it's pretty much obvious that. This is a two thumbs up recommendation from all of us. Right. Two tendrils yep. up. <laughs> two tendrils. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, if you're one of the people out there who hasn't seen Little Shop of Horrors, why not? But if you've listened to this and you feel inspired, go out and see it. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's available on, on uh, Amazon I, or Netflix. or. I believe um, both versions are actually available on YouTube. Uh, YouTube has the original one as a freebie, and I think it's a, a paid one for... Oh, is it? Okay, I, I thought I found one, which uh, maybe it is in uh, that no. case, but certainly no, 
know, but, but, yeah, you, okay. but you can see, I think it for, well, at least in Australia, I think it's like $4 listed or something, which is nothing. But mm. to be honest with you, if you still live near where, somewhere where they sell Blu-rays, I mean, I bought it locally at JB Hi-Fi for 10 bucks, and Bernie, you were saying you picked it up for £7 or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a cheapy, yeah, yeah. a cheapy Blu-ray, but it is it's an essential film. I've watched this film, must have been over the years, maybe a dozen times. I love it. Just one of those pick-me-up sort of films. And to be absolutely honest with you, I, th- I think the next film that Steve Martin made, or I can't remember the one just before this or just after this, was Roxanne. And I think right. Little Pop and Roxanne are my two go to I'm feeling down and depressed I need to be cheered up type of movie Steve Martin was on at least for me was on a roll with those uh, with those huh. things, so. I think it, it was kind of downhill for him after that as well wasn't it the, the slow steady decline began uh, unfortunately oh look he, look he made it, he made a few turkeys but really when he came back funnily enough with another Frank Oz film in uh, Bowfinger I thought well you can you can forgive him for the three amigos and <laughs> and the other films that he did in Father in of the Bride too. Right. Yeah. Right. But yeah, no, uh, uh, Bilko. Wish... Oh my god, Bilko. Jeez. Oh, no, I, I, did I... you guys ever see that film that he did? What was it called? The Dead Men uh Don't Dead Wear Men. Blood? I, I... Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. that's a great yeah. that that was awesome. You know what? I think yeah. I think I need to rewatch that. I went back actually no Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid I didn't mind. So the one I was thinking that I didn't like that a lot of people were very keen on was the lonely guy. I didn't care for that one. But yeah, Dead Dead Men Don't mm-hmm. Wear Plaid was good. And then he did uh, Pennies from Heaven, too, which is great. A sure, list, yeah, of, a list yeah. of shame I, I'd like to see. You know, actually, yeah, that's an awesome film. At which at which time did he make L.A. Story? I really like that one. L.A. Story was in the late like 90s. 90s yeah. yeah. Oh, early late 90s, 90s, late 90s. Okay. And it's, it's nice to see that nowadays he's more pursuing the musical thing. I've got a uh, CD, uh, a live CD that he's done with his uh, bluegrass band, and there's a, a live DVD that comes with the CD, so you get to see the full show with the dialogue in between songs. And he's, he's getting the best of both worlds. He's still getting to be funny in between songs, but you know he shows he has an obvious love of you know Earl Scruggs and uh, sure, any of the yeah, other uh, bluegrass greats. And uh, it's he's one of the best pickers out there, like bar none. I mean, yeah. and a lot of people don't realize. I mean, like actually. It's a funny story, but I remember being hearing that Steve Martin got his start actually playing banjo at Disneyland, like busking at Disneyland. Oh, wow. I think that's yeah. true, isn't it? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I think. that's what I've heard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, okay, Steve Martin threw the CD and DVD, but in the same year, I also got to see live Adrian Edmondson with um, oh, his yeah, band yeah. The, the Bad Shepherds play live, and also got to see... Oh, I'm, I'm having a brain fart moment. Uh, House, uh, Blackadder. Oh, Hugh Laurie. Hugh, I got to see Hugh Laurie and his New Orleans Yeah, band. yeah. So getting to see, you know, in one form or another, three brilliant comedians showing that they had genuine musical chops. It wasn't like, hey, I've learned a few chords. Let me show you I can do music too. We're talking about right. three guys who, and especially in Aid Edmondson's case, I feel that, you know what, in all cases, but particularly Aid Edmondson, I thought he's a musician first and a comedian. I mean, he's a great comedian he's, sure, a funny, yeah. he's a funny guy but i got the impression like he, he sang all these old punk songs in the gaelic fashion and i really got the impression that you know oh look i went and did comedy because hell i could and i got this offer that i couldn't knock back to do the young ones and bottom and but i got the feeling from this night that his first love was punk music and he just he was fantastic he he said a couple of funny things just like any musician would but he wasn't trying to be a comedian and that's hugh laurie yeah. when i went to see him he wanted to have the best of both worlds, as you know, Steve Martin does. And they did it great, but Aid Edmondson was basically saying, tonight I am a musician. And I say a couple of funny lines, but basically, you're here for the music, I'll give you the music. And so it, it was great to see within that short period of time, I got to see these guys all show off their musical chops. But anyway, we digress. Bernie. Next month will be November. All this October, shocktober thing will be over. So um, what have you gone and picked for us to uh, talk about next month? Okay, well, I've had this one on the back burner for a while. I don't know. I think it'll be fun to talk about whether you guys hate it or enjoy it. I've only seen it once. I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. But next month, we are going to go fairly mainstream. We're going to get on that uh, Mark Wahlberg train. Uh, we are going to watch the 2001 film directed by Stephen Herrick called Rockstar. Oh, that's the one that was about the singer for Judas Priest, the guy that um, replaced Rob Halford. That's it's loosely based on, yeah, the, the story right, of Tim right. Owens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, does, so does, it, does Mark Wahlberg sing as well as he did in Boogie Nights? I believe he probably sings a little better. 
or, or worse. I, I don't know. <laughs> but we're, we're going to go for some extreme hair metal action. Shot three with a big dose of uh, Hollywood sentimentality and um, see where that gets us. Hey, do you want so, to in- nice. do you want to invite Doctor Zom to, to join us? Because I hear Mark Wahlberg <laughs> is, is his favourite actor. Possibly. I'd, if you want to reach out to him, I, I'd, I'd be happy for that. So, hey, hey uh, Zom, <laughs> if you happen to be listening to this, we we hold an open invitation to you to uh, to join us for that. So um, there you go. You heard it here first. All right. So rock star for next. Yeah, month. it could be a train wreck, or it might at the time to reassess it into some kind of classic. <laughs> uh, but either way, I think we'll have fun talking about it. So uh, it's it's good enough. Hey, listen, Bernie, it might be as good as Ishtar. So um, well, that, that's it. Yeah, one never knows, do they? Oh, okay, all right. No, well, anyway, uh, thank you all out there for uh, listening. Please spread the word. Thank if you. you want, if you want to uh, get in touch with us, you can send us an email at seeherepodcast at gmail dot com. You can join our Facebook group, uh, which I never seem to remember. It's facebook dot com forward slash groups forward slash C here. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R or is it C here podcast? I don't remember. Try one or the other. You'll get onto it. And please make some suggestions for next year for uh, music related films that you'd like us to discuss. And we always hold an open invitation for our listeners out there to even join us. If you so wish, we don't claim to be oracles of music film wisdom. We'd love to get your perspective. We've had some great guests in the past. And actually, probably next year, we'd like to try and get a few more interviews for the show. I've, I've got a couple of things in the background working, so uh, more details as as we get there. But uh, some very exciting things I hope coming up in 2017. Any final thoughts, announcements from you two guys? Nope. Uh, no. No. <laughs> all right. Done then. All right. So, um, oh, well, I tell you what, actually, I will just put this out there briefly. It's not particularly musical related or anything, but you just mentioned Ishtar, mm. directed by Elaine May. Now, one of her earlier films uh, just came out on uh, Blue, on Eureka, a film called A New Leaf with you Walter tell- Matthau and Elaine May. You were telling me um, about this, yes. I would just like to wholeheartedly recommend it. I think it's, it was a brilliant film. Very, very good. And if you like Water Matto, if you like Elaine May, if you liked Ishtar, if you like uh, 70s sort of oddball American comedies, I thought it was fantastic. So, yeah, that's my tip for the top, other than Little Shop of Horrors this month. I'm going to order a copy of that. Uh, Eureka, have, they're a fantastic company. There's there's no yeah. postage costs and they're, uh, they're all reasonably priced. I've got about you know eight or nine Eureka titles and they just put their set together so beautifully they really do they do a great job don't they yeah oh yeah 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 and uh, look you know what elaine may walter matthau you don't need to twist my arm to convince me that that's going to be fantastic i'm sure you'll love it morris it's Mm. very very good wow excellent all right so until next month where we have some mark Wahlberg and uh, rock star action uh we and wish you all the jennifer best. aniston as well let's not forget okay <laughs> oh dear uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether to be afraid now or not gosh all right until next month uh please watch some good films or bad films uh listen to some music and please join the facebook group let your friends know that we exist go through the back catalog i'm getting desperate i shouldn't really do that but uh anyway nevertheless have a wonderful month enjoy the rest of your uh october your enjoy your halloween and we'll speak to you sometime in november with the next episode of see here podcast all the best cheers happy halloween bye cheers NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 